Well, Esther is about moments, moments that matter. And we begin the series with this idea that every moment matters, but sometimes there are big moments that have life-changing impact, moments that indelibly change who we are and define us. So I want us to go back in our memory bank. Some of you have to go back a long ways, at least 120 years, to your childhood and, uh, and your youth days, your childhood and adolescent days, and, and, and to try to identify what memory made you who you are today. There could be a series of them. Every child, every adolescent experiences something that creates an identity that is permanently seared on our soul that we carry forward our whole lives. I'll tell you one instance um, that I experienced in fourth grade. I don't remember a lot. I don't have the greatest memory going way back, but I do remember Donnie. Donnie was the, the bully at what used to be, uh, or what is now known as Temecula Elementary. He was the bully. Now, in my mind, as a scrawny, thin, stuttering fourth grader, Donnie to me was a giant. He was six foot four and bearded fourth grader in my head, right? He was the Goliath. I was, I was the, the little David. And he would pick on people, and it was my turn um, for a few weeks during my fourth grade uh, year. And I remember a couple of things. One, walking by him in a hallway. He was going north. I was going south. It was an outdoor hallway. And I just remember, don't look at Donnie in the eye. Don't look at Donnie in the eye. Just walk right past, and hopefully we can survive the, the, this moment of exchanging space. But as soon as I got to him, he pounded me against the wall. His body slammed me against the wall. Again, in my head, in my memory, I flew six feet in the air and hit the wall. Probably wasn't that big a deal, but I was freaked out. Picking stucco bits from my um, scraped up and bloodied uh, arm. And it, it, it did something to me, not just physically, that wasn't it, but what it identified me as, I carried with for a long time. Maybe a week or two later, something like that, I'm sitting in a, in a bus getting ready to go home. That's back when we had uh, buses taking children home. And uh, so I'm sitting in the bus, and I start complaining to my friend about Donnie. Oh, Donnie, I don't like that guy. And then these big, meaty hands slam on my shoulders and start to squeeze. It shows you how perceptive I am as a human being. He's in the seat behind me. And, and he leans over and he says in my ear, I'm going to kill you as he's squeezing my arms, my shoulders, and lets me go. And of course, as a fourth grader, I thought, I'm not surviving the bus ride. I am going to be done by the time this bus ride ends. And, and that's just one instant that I can remember that shaped who I thought I was. So if you were to ask me, even in middle school, these kinds of things lingered through middle school, I would have told you, I am weak and afraid. If I were to be honest with you, from fourth grade through middle school, I would have said, I am weak and afraid. That's who I thought I was. So what are your defining moments, maybe of your childhood or adolescent years? What are those defining moments that shaped an identity that you carried with you? For some of you, you can identify with being bullied. Those experiences that identified you as weak and afraid, perhaps. You felt helpless, a victim, powerless, maybe less than. Perhaps you have memories of being abused, people who should have loved you instead hurt you. What did that create in you? Usually it creates feelings of depression, anxiety, and anger at the injustice of that. Maybe you have memories of being rejected. Those experiences identifying you as devalued or cast aside or unworthy. Maybe you have experiences of being afraid. You were afraid at home. You were afraid perhaps of, uh, of some people in your neighborhood. Uh, perhaps you went to church and you were told to be afraid of God. Here's this big angry God who's out to get you. And, and perhaps you were afraid of constantly uh, being told about end times fears or very vivid messages about the horrors of hell. And, and you have lived maybe your entire life in some respects 
afraid of God. These things are seared in our soul when we're young and we don't let them go. They identify who we are. Now, there may be a few of you in here that don't have negative memories of, of childhood or in adolescence. And, and really, if you were to be honest, you would say, you know what? I've just had nothing but support from my parents. I've had success in academics, athletics, arts. You've had moments of speaking your mind confidently. You can't remember ever cowering. You speak your mind confidently. And, and you can remember a life of being supported by the community around you as they lift you up. And, and to that, I say, good for you, right? <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and this message is for you as well. We're talking about champions. We're talking about people who have some strength coming alongside people who feel weak and giving them the strength they need, giving them the encouragement they need. And as we'll see in the book of Esther, giving them exactly what they need at the exact right time to do something powerful and meaningful in this world. Let's talk about Esther. What were Esther's formative moments? What were the events that shaped who she was? Well, they're terribly tragic. First, she was an orphan, so no doubt she can remember what it's like to not have her, her biological mother and dad with her and all that that meant to her and, and in her soul and maybe an emptiness she felt. Not only that, she was ripped, likely, literally, from the arms of her adopted father, taken captive by an army. She was a sex slave, continually abused. She was voiceless and powerless. I mean, that's her formative years, between roughly 13 and 16 years old. That defined her, it shaped her as somebody who was very weak. So why in the world is there a book of the Bible in the Old Testament about Esther? If she was so weak, if she was so voiceless, if she was so powerful, if she was, by all definition, a nothing of a human being treated as property for the pleasure of a king. Why is she a hero in the Bible? Because she had a champion. She had Mordecai. Mordecai was her champion. And if you were to study the book of Esther, uh, especially from a Hebrew perspective, you would see that there's quite a debate as to who the real hero of Esther is. Is it Esther or is it Mordecai? Is it the woman who saved the nation or the man who gave her the strength as a young girl to make the decisions she needed to make to save a nation? And so let's just say it's both. We've celebrated Esther as a hero, and today we're celebrating Mordecai as a hero because he championed someone who was weak. How did he do that? Well, first he, he championed Esther by giving her a family. Mordecai championed Esther by giving her a family. I can't think of a better way to champion a life than to adopt a child as your own. Esther 2.5. A Jew in Susa, the citadel, it's the capital of the Babylonian empire. A Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemel, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with a Jeconi king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, carried away. Why do I read the, the genealogy? It's important. It's important to the story. It's important enough in the story to be put there, right, as every genealogy is in the Old Testament. Because we're not Jewish, we don't connect with this stuff, which is completely understandable, right? But why is it in there? It's in there because it establishes Mordecai as, as from the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Jew, and the Jews, all 12 tribes, were taken captive by, by Babylon. Actually, the tribes that remained were taken uh, captive by Babylon. The Assyrians wiped out a bunch of tribes, and here Babylon comes and sweeps up uh, what is remaining. And Mordecai and his whole family is swept up in that. 
Now, he comes from the tribe of Benjamin, and there's a little kind of subnote about the tribe of Benjamin. There was a season when the tribe of Benjamin did not have enough women in their tribe, so they stole women to be their wives. So they have a terrible history of how they treat women. And so you have this Benjamite tribe uh, who is, has a terrible reputation of how they treat women, and here's Mordecai from that tribe who couldn't treat women any better. He adopts Esther. Now, 2,400 years ago, in the ancient Near East, women were nothing more than property. Women babies were considered to be sometimes a shame to a family. They were considered to be good for nothing except for kind of taking care of the place, uh, maybe um, providing for the family in the fields, and taking care of babies and pleasuring their husbands. As, as raw and terrible as that sounds, that's life 2,400 years ago. And yet here is this Benjamite who has a, a tribal history of mistreating women deciding to adopt a girl who's an orphan. That's a champion. That's a champion. And I love the champions that continue today through adoption and foster care. There are half a million children in the U.S. that need foster and adoptive care. And, and there are so many families right here in our church that have decided we will adopt, we will uh, foster. And they're making the decision to, to be a parent to a child that doesn't have a parent. There's no greater champion on earth. And beyond that, there's no greater love expressed on earth than adopting a child. And it, and it very truly is the love of God. Adopting is the greatest reflection of the love of God on earth. So whenever I hear somebody in, in our church or our school is adopting, I always make, make note. Talk to them, look them in the eye, and thank them for being the love of God to these children. Because that is how God loves us. We're all adopted children of God. Ephesians 1.5, God decided in advance, Ephesians 1 says, before the foundation of the earth, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family. That's who we are to him. We are adopted daughters and sons of God. That's our identity. That's our core identity. If you ever wonder what God thinks of you, wonder no longer. From this day forward, you shall wonder no longer what God truly thinks of you. God thinks of you exact, in exactly the same way as God thinks of Jesus Christ. Exactly. And you're saying, well, that's not possible. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is perfect. We know the Father's thoughts towards Jesus Christ, according to John 3.16, the only begotten Son of God, the one and only Jesus Christ. We know he's perfect. We know God declared him uh, the Son in whom he is well pleased. But that's Jesus. That's not me. I'm not worthy of that. I know my faults, I know my flaws, I know my failures, I know where I've gone wrong, I know my guilt, I know how far I have to go, I know the things I do that I shouldn't do, I know the things that I don't do that I should do. I'm well aware of my guilt and well aware of my, my failings, and so God must look at me with disappointment. God must look at me and say, hey, do better, right? God must look at me and say, you know what, if you don't square your act away, I'm going to get you, I'm going to curse your life in, so, in some way. Stop it. As of today, I forbid you from any further thoughts like that, right? No way. How does God think of you right here, right now, just as you are? He thinks of you as his perfect daughter and his perfect son. Why? Because he adopted you, quote, as his own. Jesus is the only begotten, but he has billions of adopted daughters and sons that he says everything that belongs to Jesus by right, I give you as a gift. In my eyes, you are perfect. In my eyes, you are holy. In my eyes, you're, you're blameless. In my eyes, you are accepted fully as you are, where you are. I'll prove that at the end of this message definitively. So Mordecai adopted Esther. What an incredible champion. 
And for those of you who have fostered, for those of you who have adopted, you are, are the expression of the love of God. And for some of you, if uh, you're interested, I talked to a few families after last service, they're just interested, uh, I encourage you to talk to Megan. Um, Megan has gone through that whole process as well, and she is our, our partner in all of our ministries to, uh, to serve people in this community, including adopting and fostering. So talk to Megan. So Mordecai championed Esther by adopting her. Secondly, Mordecai championed Esther by giving her tools to survive. The book of Esther is truly about life and death. These armies uh, enslaved Esther, pulling her from her household to prepare her to be a sex slave to pleasure the emperor. That's who she was. And if she didn't pleasure the emperor, she could be cast aside or worse. So it's truly about survival. And Mordecai gave her what she needed to survive. Here's the scenario, Esther 2.3. Let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem. After that, the young women who most please the king will be made queen. It's as disgusting as it sounds. But beyond that, the emperor was tricked to give a decree to slaughter every man, woman, and child who is Jewish. Esther was Jewish. So what did Mordecai do? Esther had not revealed her nationality to the emperor and her family background, as Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Mordecai says to Esther, listen, you're in a dangerous situation. Not only are you a slave, part of this harem, but you're Jewish. And there is a decree that is coming that will slaughter every Jew. Esther, do not reveal your identity. Keep it a secret. Now, as I study God's word and teach God's word, I I get the um, privilege most of the time to read a lot of scholars and commentators about various passages of scripture. Sometimes it's a nightmare to read, however. There are a lot of commentators who put on their little commentator glasses and go, I think Esther um, sinned by lying, and I think Mordecai sinned by telling her to lie about her nationality. These are, are, are moralists. These are moralists who think their number one job is to give moral judgment on people's behavior. Uh, If you're taking notes, take this. Moralists are the worst. (laughs) They are the worst. And they're out there. They are out there. There might even be one or two in here. You're the worst. (laughs) Out there judging everybody's behavior. Is this a sin? Is this a sin? Is that a... As though God's priority is for all of us to follow the hundreds of rules, moral rules. It's moral nitpicking, and it's a disaster. Jesus came to free us from moral nitpicking, right? Moralists are the worst. God, God's desire is for humanity to thrive, and wherever God gives a, a, a command, he's giving it to us so that we will thrive. And if we start saying, you know, the, the commands of God are, are somehow, now the goal is, is obedience, rote obedience without even thinking, Wrote obedience just for the sake of appeasing an angry God or whatever we grew up, you know, thinking. God gave commands so that we would thrive. And Jesus just summarized all of them by saying, love God, love others, you're good. Next. And so here's Mordecai, and he's giving her wise advice that I think comes from the heart of God. Esther, you lie about your nationality. (gasps) The moralist had to explode. If, if I was, uh, let's say, a, a homeowner in Poland in 1942, I would hope I would have the courage to hide some Jewish families who are being hunted by Nazis. 
And, and if I had a Jewish family in the basement of my house and the Nazi guards uh, knocked on the doors and they said, uh, Pastor uh, Treadway, um, do you have any Jews in your basement? I would look him right in the eye and say, no, I do not. What's all that rumbling in the basements? Cats, off with you, right? I mean, moralism just takes all humanity out and just talks about the fine-tuning of moral compliance, and it's just a, it's a disaster. Moralists, you're the worst. So how can you give somebody the tools to survive? How can you give somebody the tools to survive? And we might think, well, our context is, is not as dramatic as Mordecai's and Esther's. I mean, that was truly life and death, moment by moment, trying to hide her nationality so she's not slaughtered, right? Well, while our story may not be dramatic, we can absolutely do things that, that will bring survival to people who are in need. For example, um, for any of you who are uh, sponsors to, uh, of Imani children, these are uh, orphan children who are being educated and loved in the Embu province of Kenya. And that's a school that was started by a family that goes to Rancho, had a business connection with a family in Kenya, and they saw these grandmothers taking care of these orphans, but these grandmothers were poor, and they were truly dying off, and these orphans were left uncared for. So a, a whole partnership emerged, including Rancho, and started this Imani school and their sponsorships that, that now are giving these kids the tools they need to survive. Um, maybe you can join our anti-human trafficking ministry, help at Community Mission of Hope, serve on the farm. There's all kinds of ways to get involved. In any of these things, I'll just keep telling you, talk to Megan, talk to Megan. Who's Megan? She's the blonde lady up here who does the announcements and hosting, and she's at the Welcome Center, and she loves you guys and loves this church and loves to mobilize this church to serve people in need. There's something you can do to give people the tools to survive. That's a champion. Mordecai did that to Esther. We can do that to others. Third, Mordecai championed Esther by giving her consistent friendship. A champion is one who consistently befriends someone who is struggling. Consistently befriending someone who is struggling. Esther 2.11, every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. He cared about her. He, he knew she was enslaved. She was probably ripped out of his arms and put in this harem. He knew that the king's harem could not be touched. He knew the king's harem could not sometimes be, even be looked at. And so he knew the courtyard where the harems were kept. And he made sure constantly to go back and forth to make sure she knew he cared for her. Sometimes he would slip notes and sometimes he would give messages, right? But she always knew he was always there. Whether she could see him or not, he was always around always expressing her, to her in every creative way he could that he was there, he loved her, he cared about her, and wanted to make sure that she was okay. He was a constant friend to Esther. So who could you encourage through constant friendship? So right now I want you to think about somebody in your world who's hurting, somebody in your, in your world who needs a champion, Perhaps somebody who's lost a job. They have trouble finding a job, which is really messing with their personal identity and self-confidence. Maybe who's somebody who's struggling through a, a terrible med medical diagnosis. We probably all know somebody who's struggling through a terrible medical diagnosis, and they have some tough days ahead. Maybe somebody who is mentally ill, and they're racked with depressions or anxieties, maybe paralyzed by their mental illness. Somebody who's struggling through a bitter divorce, their, their family is breaking up, or a rebellious kid, they're hurting, and they don't know what their next uh, uh, choice will be. Maybe they're suffering the loss of a parent, the loss of a spouse, worse yet, the loss of a child. 
These people are hurting, and I'm telling you, they're here. They're right here. And maybe some of you are feeling, you know, I'm that person, and I could use a champion right now. They are here. Sometimes people begin even coming to church because they're hurting, and they're looking for a champion. They're looking for somebody like Mordecai to come alongside someone who's hurting and give them some care, give them some friendship, right? Come alongside the champion. Now, there's something um, that happens in the human condition that happens to all of us. Our brains are wired to avoid pain. That's why when you get up after church today, you're not going to speedily walk into a wall, right? Because your brains are wired to avoid pain. Don't hurt yourself. The same brain that causes us to avoid pain for ourselves is the same brain that causes us to separate from others who are experiencing pain. If there's somebody in your world that's experiencing pain, your brain says begin to separate from that person. You don't do it intentionally. You don't do it because you don't care. You do it because your brain says avoid pain, so you avoid pain. And over time, we just start talking to that person a little bit less. The conversations maybe are uncomfortable. We don't know exactly what to say. We don't know what good we can do, and so we just slowly separate. I want to encourage you, if there's someone in your life, let me rephrase that, there is somebody in your life who needs a champion through consistent friendship. It's work to stay connected with somebody who's hurting. It's work. Believe me, I have a Rolodex of regrets uh, with people that I have kind of slowly separated from who needed a champion, and maybe I wasn't there as I should be. But I also have a Rolodex of people who I've made the decision to say, you know, put in the work and be there and don't let go, no matter how awkward, no matter um, uh, how, how helpless you, you think, and no matter if the words aren't there, just be there as a constant friend. And, there, and there's really little more meaningful in life than that. Push through the temptation to separate and be a champion for a person who's struggling. Fourth and finally, Mordecai championed Esther by giving her the strength to do the right thing at the right time. We celebrated Esther's big moment last week. We really focused on that moment. She made the declaration in Esther 4.16, I will go see the king. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go see the king. If I die, I die. That incredible act of courage from a teenaged slave girl to say, I'm going to risk my life and I'm going to create this elaborate plan to get the attention of the king uninvited. It's going to risk my life and I'm going to say it. I'm going to confront the king and confront his aide who convinced him to execute the Jews. And so at the right time and the right moment that she created, Esther declared this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. She got him. She busted him. Now, what gave her the strength to do that? We know that God isn't even mentioned in Esther. The only book of the Bible where God isn't even mentioned. So God didn't perform some miracle in her life. God didn't split the sky and shine a light in her face. God didn't come to her in a dream or a vision. How did she get the strength to confront the emperor to his face, risking her own life? She had the champion, Mordecai. He gave her the strength to do the right thing at the right time. Esther 4.14 he counseled her, and I can imagine he's counseling her through tears. I'm just assuming that because she's his daughter. He adopted her, as the Bible says, as his own. So she wasn't a second-class daughter. She wasn't you know, the back of the line while his, his biological daughters are, and sons are taken care of. He adopted her and treated her as his own. So you can imagine through tears he is telling her to risk her life for a greater cause. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this? This is wise counsel. 
Mordecai is saying, hey, listen, you've got to walk through the consequences. Imagine the consequences of your decisions, Esther. If you do nothing, the entire nation dies. And that might be considered heavy. It might even be considered cruel, but it's the truth. Sometimes you just have to say hard things in the context of a loving relationship. You have to say hard things. So Mordecai said, the nation is in your hands, Esther. You're the only one who has a voice directly to the emperor. And I know you're a slave, and I know you're property in his eyes, but you're the only one who has a voice. And work through the consequences. If you do nothing, everyone dies. If you do something, everyone still might die, and you might die. So the consequences could, could even be more dire, at least over here, you might live. Or, or, just maybe, you were made queen to save a nation. He walked her through the consequences and then he also recognized God's promises. He doesn't say the name God, but he points to the promise of God. He says, listen, if the nation is decimated now because you don't do anything, sometime in the future, God will raise up this nation again. There's a promise throughout the Old Testament that God has a special place in his heart for the Jewish people. That's been borne out through human history, right? God first called the nation of Israel. Then later, Jesus comes through the nation of Israel. God has a special place in his heart for Israel. And Mordecai calls that out and says, Esther, if you don't do anything and the nation is slaughtered, God will raise this nation up again somehow later after all the carnage. And so he, he clings on to God's promises. And then he invites her to do the meaningful. Do the meaningful. Take a risk. A father encouraging his daughter to risk her life for a greater cause. That's the tension of the book of Esther. And because Mordecai championed Esther, this, this weak and afraid girl received the strength and the courage to do the right thing at the right time, and a nation is saved. And because that nation is saved, Jesus Christ is born, who is now the savior of the world. Because of that champion, Mordecai. I told you the story of my fourth grade going a little bit wrong, and I held that, uh, you know, afraid and weak sort of identity all the way through middle school. And then in high school, some champions came into my life. As a high schooler, freshman, 13 years old, Brad Fogel came into my life. He was my youth pastor at the time, and I was just one of a few dozen kids, and he spent time with me, took me out to coffee, took me out to lunch, said, hey, you want to do a little Bible study together? Brad Fogel. And in my mind, as a freshman, I'm like, ooh, he's a pastor. He's got fancy pastor things, super important, right? We all know how super mega important pastors are, right? I, I'm but in my mind, he's a big deal. And he spent time with me, and, and he added value to my life. And then after him was Todd Anderson. And when I was 16 or 17 years old, Todd says, hey, listen, I see something in you, and, and I want you to take leadership in middle school. After about a week, he says, you have the whole middle school department. I'm 17 years old. How illegal is that? <laughs> but that was back in, in Hick days of Rancho California here in this valley, and nobody even knew we were on the map, so we got away with anything here in uh, Rancho California. But Todd Anderson said, hey, listen, God can do something significant through your life. I was just a volunteer at the time, running middle school ministry. Had a blast. Bill Mohan, a math teacher of mine, he says uh, he did a little Bible study with a bunch of kids, and um, most kids do not like Bible studies. <laughs> and so I happen to be kind of growing in my fondness for God's Word, and so he says, let's meet every week. He and I met nearly every week for 22 years. And he started mentoring me when he was 63 years old as a freshman in high school. 22 years. 
he told me probably 20 years into our relationship, he says, you know, I spend about eight hours preparing for our time together every time we meet. Eight hours. I want to be really clear. I wouldn't do that for any of y'all. That's not my standard. <laughs> my standard is seven and a half, but not eight. I mean, eight hours of personal prep to meet with me. I probably spent about 10 minutes working on, you know, doing a little reading and doing a little, we always went through some book. Eight hours. You know what he taught me? He taught me that I can have an intellectual faith. I didn't have to shut off my brain to have faith in God. And then there was Monty Sharp. Monty Sharp is still serving youth in this valley. He's been doing so for about 40 years, no joke. And he came alongside of me when I was in high school, and he says, you know what, you could be a leader. I want you in my leadership team. And I still remember sitting in rooms being taught by him on what it's like to be a Christ-like leader. This weak and afraid boy was made a man of a little more courage, a little more strength by Brad Fogle, Todd Anderson, Bill Mulholland, and Monty Sharp. And I'm forever grateful for those men. And as they built some courage and strength in me over time, I was able to build some strength and courage in others. In fact, I was just at my wife's uh, 30th high school reunion, an event that I'll just be honest with you and no one else, I did not want to go to <laughs> my wife's 30th. I just had no interest. What shocked me is when I went there, I began to realize really quick that a bunch of people were there from that very first middle school program that I took on under Todd Anderson. Because I was 17, the people who were in the group were just a year or two behind me, right? And, and, and they started coming up to me. This is now 30 years later and thanking me for that summer, thanking me for that youth group, thanking me for that camp. I mean, what an incredible thing. It ended up being, I talked to more people that night than my wife did, so how's that? It was awesome, really. It's just kind of God's gift to say, even when you were young and dumb, now you're old and dumb, but when you were young and dumb, the champions that poured into your life empowered you to be a champion in the lives of others. And so I want to thank every single one of you who championed somebody's life. You may be serving our nursery or children's ministry as a volunteer. You volunteer in our youth ministry. Maybe your, your vocation helps out kids. Maybe you're a sponsor at Imani or sponsor a kid overseas. Maybe you serve in a community mission of hope. Maybe you did a Thanksgiving bag and you're doing an Operation Christmas Child and you're gonna get a $25 gift card for a, for a single mother who wants to buy gifts for her kids. You're a champion. And if you haven't done any of those things, I just want you to know when the time is right, you're a champion to be. At some point, you will champion somebody. And it's got to be the right time and the right place. This is not meant to guilt you into anything, but to just simply put a vision in your head that at some point, God will raise you up, probably by a champion pouring into your life, raise you up to give you the strength and the courage to be a champion in the life of another. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you, first and foremost, that Jesus Christ is our champion, our, our capital C champion. As we were led through communion earlier, the price that he paid to lift us up, to give us strength, to give us courage, the price that he paid to lay down his life, to, to take the full brunt of the suffering and the sin and the shame and the scorn of this world upon himself. As Jesus said in that upper room, I'm gonna show you the full measure of my love and he laid down his life, his body broken and his blood shed to get this message of grace to the world. 
so that we're no longer defined by our failures, we're no longer defined by our sin, we're no longer defined by how we may be disappointing you. God, you love us, you've adopted us as your sons and daughters. You embrace us, you accept us just as we are. You declare us perfect and holy and blameless in your sight and Jesus proved that he took everything for us on the cross and he lived a life of perfect righteousness for us and he gives us forgiveness and gives us his righteousness as a gift. As the Bible says, we are covered by the righteousness of Christ. And so all you see is a perfect daughter, a perfect son. That's a gift you give to us. So if we ever doubt um, how or what you think of us, I pray that we would understand to the deepest parts of who we are that you see us exactly the same way you see Jesus, your only begotten son, because we are your adopted sons and daughters. We thank you for such grace. Thank you that that grace causes us to be encouraged and to be strengthened. You are our champion, and you've brought other champions alongside of us. So I pray that every one of us, when the time is right, when the moment is right, that we would step up and be the champion of someone else, particularly the younger generations and the poor and the orphan and those in need. God, would you allow our heart of compassion to be married to someone or a cause that we can champion and, and that we can make a difference in this world. We trust you for your guidance. We trust you that you would truly have our life be a life of significance, making the world a better place, advancing the cause of Christ. In his name we pray and everyone said, amen.